you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. And, you know, going back, we, we've talked about Derrida, Foucault, Lyotard. We've talked about um, the influences, of course, of, of Bell and Crenshaw, uh, D'Angelo and others, Kendi. Marcusa. Marcusa, we just spoke about, you know, in our previous conversation. And that goes back to the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. Mm-hmm. And then 1968, Marx, Mao, and Marcusa, and yeah. that great revolution that uh, was the start of something, but it never really took. You know, yeah. that was, I think what you're seeing is kind of the echoes of that, but on steroids today. But if we go way back, James, like, and we go back to where the root of these ideas came from. Like if we're looking at like Rousseau. Sure. And the idea of collective liberty, uh, the social contract. Um, But then there is someone else that really seemed to, I've addressed issues like alchemy. Yeah. And explaining what alchemy is in the modern context. But really that that terminology was really uh, given a rebirth within a philosophical, you know, uh, understanding of things by who? Hegel, the great, uh, the great sorcerer of German idealism. Yeah. Uh, really, you have to understand him that way. Yeah. Uh, Hegel's a complicated character because um, if you've tried to read Hegel, the first thing that you notice is that he doesn't make any sense at all. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of tortured explanations. He has this one fairly famous explanation where he tries to talk about sound and uh, sound and heat or something like this and it's mm. just you know the heat is generated by the sound and the sound of the heat is the generation of the heat and the sound and it's just it's very very terrible writing um, mm. one of his contemporaries in Germany Schopenhauer said that it's you know <laughs> basically some of the worst writing it's an embarrassment to the German people and all if people will make fun of German philosophy forever because of their dear Hegel um, so it's very difficult to understand what Hegel was about. Right. Um, and that's reflected in the fact that, so a lot of people don't realize Hegel wrote his first major work in mostly 1806. It came out 1807. That's uh, Phenomenology of Spirit is how we usually translate it. Its mm. full title is something like uh, the, um, what is it? The something of science, the, the, the roots of science or something like this, the phenomenology, phenomenology of spirit. And, um, he was trying to lay out, like all the idealists, a very systematic philosophy, and he actually, from it published in 1807, became something of a huge philosophical rock star by the 1820s when he died. Mm-hmm. And it, when once he died, there was a huge kind of movement, and it actually split immediately into what were called the old Hegelians, who were very conservative, and the new Hegelians, who were very, very, what we would describe as progressive and they had radically different interpretations of what Hegel wrote. So the point there being that Hegel was um, difficult to understand. It's not, if you can have radically different progressive versus conservative interpretations immediately in the wake of his death mm. that are at diametrical odds to one another, it's pretty clear that you know, he wasn't clear. And uh, the engine of left thought is young Hegelianism. Mm. The most uh, kind of one of the more prominent young Hegelians was Feuerbach, and Feuerbach Feuerbach. was a mentor to Marx, who was also a young Hegelian. And uh, it was the young Hegelian idea that Marx said that he stood on its head to create dialectical materialism. So Mm -hmm. the engine of pretty much all of the left, and if you even want to see it as a faith system of the left, 
over the last 200 years can be traced back to Hegel. Uh, oh. So he's, he's, he's the character. He is the alchemist. He was, in fact, mm -hmm. an alchemist. And he based his philosophy on alchemical formulas. So right. people in more modern times who are talking about alchemy, alchemy of finance notwithstanding, mm -hmm. are operating within that uh, tradition. But you see all these people you just mentioned, um, especially Marcuse. Marcuse refers to Hegel over and over and over again in all of his books, all of his essays. You look at the other Frankfurt School guys, they're very Hegelian. In fact, they what they did, in a sense, is if Marx stood Hegel on his head, they stood Hegel back upright again. They went back to the very early Marx when he was his most Hegelian, or young Hegelian, we should say, mm. and kind of reinvented that and injected more Hegel. So Hegel is the engine of kind of all of critical theory. He's the engine of Marxism. He's the engine of even the postmodern, even though the, the postmodern philosophers were very critical of Hegel in, in a lot of ways, their underlying, their operating system, if you will, the, 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 the engine inside of their vehicle uh, is still the Hegelian philosophy as interpreted by that progressive group coming straight out of his, his time. Mm. And people don't understand. Um, and this is actually, I think, important because if we do want to, as many people do, and I know we dip in and out of it some, if we want to characterize it as a faith system, you have to understand Hegel. You have to understand Hegel's metaphysics. And once you understand Hegel's metaphysics, you can start to see the metaphysical structure under this, the logic of what is now just described as the left. Mm. So he's the guy. And so you, you look at how also even modern politics uses the same sort of dialectical system, you know, the whole thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Right, yeah, that's, Hegel took that from Kant and made that the center. And so you, when you say thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, we can talk about that a lot, but the first thing to draw out, since I just mentioned religion, is that as a trinity. Mm -hmm. There are three things happening here. Mm -hmm. um, and this is how Hegel thought. Uh, he thought in lots of uh, trinities or triplets. Mm -hmm. And so um, thesis, antithesis, and, and synthesis, which he borrowed from Kant, and made a little bit more concrete. Um, literally, he changed some of it to abstract and concrete. Um, mirrors that. Uh, you have this idea, like, you know, God the Father is a thesis. Jesus the Son is an antithesis. The Holy Spirit becomes a synthesis of these ideas, the operation of God's will in the world. Mm -hmm. And so he conceived of all of these theological but also philosophical concepts that he was wrestling with at the time to create an idealistic, um, systematic philosophy of everything mm. he conceived of that in these kind of trinitarian triplets um and this one the dialectical process if you if you so that's the engine right if you wanted to say how does the hegel car go what makes hegel's car go it is the synth, uh, the the dialectical process which is mm. that you have a, an idea a thesis you meet it up against its contradictions. He was huge in saying that everything contains its own contradiction. So you have your thesis, its contradiction, its antithesis, and when you contemplate those things in the right way, you end up with a broader understanding of a greater total, which he called the synthesis, or mm -hmm. Kant called the synthesis, actually. So, right, so you're looking at uh, the concept then that absolute truth is not knowable in, in essence because of the um, you know, let, let's say, I know that Pete uses the term reality tunnels, but because of our influence, because of our, 
our ethnicities, our, our lived experiences, and so forth. So with this, in a, in a modern context, it's more of, well, you have the thesis that you're presenting to me, which I have an antithesis in terms of my understanding of this is, is completely contradictory to yours, so we have to find a synthesis, right. in other words. Yeah, and so it's interesting you brought up absolute knowledge because um, mm. Hegel did believe in the perfectibility of knowledge, perfectibility of ideas. In fact, the perfectibility of ideas is sort of the core of his system. The mm. idea is how, in fact, do you perfect ideas? And so the, the dialectical process for Hegel was the process of perfecting mm. the ideas. And so for him, he talks about it in terms of spirit, in particular, phenomenology of spirit. What's mm -hmm. the phenomenon? How do we understand the phenomenon? That's phenomenology of spirit, Geist. Mm. in German, and so he's talking about subjective spirit, objective spirit, mm -hmm. and then eventually the synthesis is going to be absolute spirit. Mm. And so you have, uh, what is the spirit? It's, well, people are familiar with, with the phrase, uh, the term Geist in, in a compound word, Zeitgeist, which is mm -hmm. the spirit of the times. Um, Hegel didn't talk about Zeitgeist a lot, he mentioned it, but he talked more about Weltgeist, world spirit. The, the current of the way that the world is moving. Not just, not just some local, you know, spirit of the times kind of thing, but the, the, the whole big picture, how the world is developing, the world spirit. Mm. And his belief was, in fact, that when the dialectical process is pushed along far enough and you finally have every contradiction exposed, everything contains its own contradiction, and when you have all the contradiction, contradictions brought to the surface exposed and synthesized, then the ideas come, become perfected the ideas become, uh, the, the, the world spirit becomes aware of itself and mm. it uh, actualizes as the absolute spirit, the, mm. or his absolute. And this is what you have to understand if we want to talk about it metaphysically, very much so um, the concept of deity that, that Hegel was interested in kind of um, building, partly out of Christianity, but largely because he believed that Christianity was a colonizing religion to the German people, and he mm. wanted to get back to kind of a more Volkish or Folkish Volkish, religion. Right. Um, he wanted to get, you know, <laughs> ein, ein Volk. <laughs> uh, yeah. that, that idea turned out to work. It's work magic in history, if you will. It's, it's alchemy in history um, under exactly that idea to create a Folkish religion for the German people. Which, by the way, just as a tangent, since we talk about critical race theory a lot, people often see, see W.E.B. Du Bois as mm -hmm. the underlying, you know, kind of the first critical race theorist. He's the guy who comes up, he's not a critical race theorist that was Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, but he's the root, right? And they say, oh, you know, uh, he had the idea of double consciousness. He had a lot of these writings. Well, <laughs> where did he get these ideas? Mm. He went to Germany and he studied, he primarily studied the German idealist Herder. And what did he learn from them? Come home, what does he write? The souls of black folks. Hmm. So he found a folkish religion in identity politics. And so you actually have this same kind of mentality, this finding that folk religion being very relevant to all of the things that we're dealing with today, um, if you're willing to trace the lines. But uh, Herder isn't Hegel, of course. Uh, hmm. This is a, a conversation for another time. But even there, you see the same influence to create these, it was Hegel's idea to create that folkish religion again for the German people. And then it's a few, few steps to get from there to critical race theory. Mm -hmm. um, even without dipping through the critical theorists and, and the direct Hegelian line. So this is a very relevant figure um, who the vast majority of people 
kind of think, thinking and talking these days aren't mentioning. They go backwards to Marx and stop. Right, right. So why is that? Why, why do you think it's just because he's the central figure that we can say, well, there's a direct line between Marx and Fabianism, a direct link between Marx and Lenin and Stalin oh, and so forth. Yeah. And, right. yeah, I mean, all these guys were at heart Marxists. Right. Um, Lenin's whole point was Marx. You know, you look at Mao and he's talking about Lenin with Chinese characteristics and Marx. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were all Marxists and the, the mm -hmm. critical theorists were critical of Marx, but they were still trying to, uh, what they were actually doing is taking back again to Marx's, they weren't going back to pure Hegelian thought. They were taking the young Hegelian Marx in his very earliest writing before he wrote Capital, before he wrote any of the stuff that they, the critical theorists decided that most of Marx's later works left the Hegelian construct, mm. the, or metaphysic really, and kind of got off the path by focusing too much on the materialism aspect, focusing too much on the economic aspect, um, instead of focusing on ideas and culture and the way that ideas and culture interact. So how do you see Hegel, let's say, let's start with, how do you see Hegel and as, you know, of course, using Hegel as the base, but yet transitioning into something else in Marx. Just where do you see and I mean, what do you see in that? The best description I ever heard of it, I get made fun of on the internet for this. The best description I ever heard of it was that somebody said, and I took it a step further, but as, as kind of a mathematics description, was that what Marx did was that he took Hegel mm. and then he did a change of variables, mm. okay? So Hegel's variable was the, 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 the ideas of the world, which yeah. des were described as you know, the philosophy of the world. Um, he was looking for a system of philosophy. It's couched in ideas. Ideas in a kind of very neoplatonist way are the, are mm -hmm. the currency of, of what is. And um, Marx was like, no, we're gonna change the variable to the material world. We're not gonna float around in ideas. Right. We're going to look at the material world. So what I had said, unfortunately for me was on, on Twitter was that he had done what's called a Fourier transform which changes the shape of the curve into another type of curve while retaining all of its information exactly and then I said he did a change of variables and then what I said was that the critical theorists ended up doing the uh, inverse Fourier transform which made people mad but at any rate what had happened was when when Marx said I took Hegel and stood him on his head what Marx was saying if you want to call it a Fourier transform, I suppose that's fine. What he was saying was, um, I took the idea, the dialectical process, dialectical materialism, that Hegel had and said, let's take it out of the clouds mm. and let's put it into the world. Right, right. Right, and so Hegel was still very much in his own odd respect, right. alchemical respect, in, in many regards, a theologian. Right. He was talking about the absolute. He's tying it in against Christianity. He's looking to build the roots for a German folk religion. Um, mm -hmm. This is a, not the project of Marx, who said openly that he was at war with God and that you know, his soul was already committed to hell or whatever and he was gonna take it down and that was fine. He, his, was, his was the world. It was, in fact, for him, the world was just economics. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he did, is he brought it down into the world and made it very clearly applicable in a very specific sense. So Marx's project preserved that idea of Hegel saying, let's find the contradictions in everything. Right. Let's point out the contradictions. Let's take the worker, the pro, let's take the worker and let's show him the contradictions of his existence. Mm -hmm. And then he'll become, they will become the proletariat, this awakened worker. 
that now wants to have a, a revolutionary consciousness to over you know overthrow the the forces of, of capitalism that are keeping him down and he also preserved much of um, Hegel's historicism but he also made that very material right so Hegel believed that the ideas of history history is the current of ideas through society mm -hmm. or through time and so this everything where you say where you hear the postmodernists for example say you know we have to think all ideas are contingent to the to the time and place where they were where they were made you always have to think in terms of spatiality and temporality because they have to use a big unnecessarily big word to and use it slightly wrong or whatever to to do postmodernism when you hear that that's hegel hegel's idea was that the ideas of the time are or the the ideas are are the progression of history as they evolve through time that's the progression of history and that history becomes perfectible well, mm -hmm. Marx was like, yeah, that's true. You have these six stages of economics, and that's what history is about. He made right. it material again. Right. And so it's the same process of bringing it into the world and standing it in, into that material process. Where for, for Marx, the historicism was that advanced industrial capitalism will definitely give way to socialism as the proletariat becomes aware of its misery mm -hmm. and uh, its, its dissatisfaction with its, with its um, circumstances. That will now become socialism, and then eventually, as the state perfects itself, and this—that is pure, pure Hegel. Hegel, pure Hegel. That's right. That's pure not Marx. No, oh, it is Marx, but it started Hegel. Yes. yes. So Marx said that industrial capitalism will transition into socialism, and then the state will gradually perfect itself. Correct. Through the dialectical process, right. and when that dialectical process perfects the state, all of a sudden the proletariat, who is now the state, will realize. We don't need a state. And then we're in the communist utopia. But right. this is the same as Hegel saying that the ideas of, of, the, ideas of the time, the, the, uh, the Weltgeist, will eventually, through the dialectical process, perfect themselves. And the contradictions will no longer require more synthesis and the absolute will realize itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eric Vogelin describes that as immunitizing the eschaton, which is a very mm. religious way to understand it. We brought about the, the, the end of history, mm -hmm. um, if you will. And now we're in what follows the eschaton. Well, in theology, you know, it's end times. And then after judgment day, those who are deemed worthy are in the utopia of heaven. In Hegel, we live in a perfect society mediated by a perfect state. And with Marx, that's right. communist. And so communism was Marx's invention. It's what Marx derived from Hegel. Mm -hmm. And so then all of the left after that has essentially been communist in mm -hmm. orientation. And the goal is always push society into socialism and then we're on the way. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think they focus on Marx is because Marx is the one who made it applicable. Marx, however, wasn't the guy who made it work. That was, that was Marcuse and these, these later characters. If you want to talk about it being made to work by force, you're looking at Lenin, you're looking at Stalin, you're looking at Mao, mm. looking at Pol Pot, mm. these guys. If you want to make it work, however, by changing the culture to just accept it, whether it's the Fabian approach or whether it's the Frankfurt School approach through critical theory, the Gramscian approach through changing the pillars of culture uh, with cultural Marxism, that is exactly the same idea. And the goal was to create something that was like communism, yes. but not just material. Right. You know, it's more about culture than it is. So the, the, the current manifestation of this would be perfect the culture, save the world. Mm -hmm. Marx's would be perfect the economy, save the world. 
Hegel's would be perfect the idea, save the world. Right. But it's the same thing. It's just shifted slightly from ideas to economy to culture. So as if there is a common source for the river that continues. Right. And as that river finds its way and cuts its way through rock, etc., and that sort of thing, to find a, to, to go from the source to actually find an end. Right, and that, it's going to cut through the softest rock as it goes. That's right. That's right. It's going to find its way <laughs> to whichever rock, wherever you know, we have this, there's cracks in it. Wherever yeah. there's a crack, it's going to find its way into that weakness. And that's yeah. what it's going to erode and expand and make bigger and wider over time. And so that's where you find those sensitive wedge issues in culture and you start exposing the contradictions in them. And what that means in practice is you make people dissatisfied right. with their own lives. Right. The, the Marcusa and Adorno, for example, were very interested in making people very much dislike their consumer culture, their pop culture. Oh, you listen to jazz music. That was you know, Adorno's big thing rather than high classical music. Right. He was a musician. He was a very uh, prolific composer, but he just hated jazz. Why? Mm -hmm. Because jazz is eroding the culture. Right. And of course, now you look at jazz, you can't avoid. There's a racial component to that statement. Mm -hmm. And so now you're finding extra cracks within that crack and just trying to erode and erode. And Marcuse was like, oh yeah, you just go to work every day. You think you like your job, but you work every day for some other person to get them richer, and then what do you do? You come home, you watch a commercial, and you say, you know, it's not even you thinking, it's heteronymous influences controlling you, and now you're like, I need that sweet Bel Air car, you know? I need that sweet wing on the back. I need this, I need that, I need the blender, I need this, mm -hmm. this uh, gadget, I need all this stuff. And then what? You get up the next morning and go back to the job that you don't necessarily know that you hate, but you hate it. Right. working in inhuman conditions and we're going to teach you that you hate your job and we're going to teach you that there's no satisfaction in life to this consumerist life that you live where you you know you enjoy the stuff you do you like your barbecue with your neighbor right no actually you don't this is the man exploiting <laughs> you look you're drinking a brand name beer and you just got advertised to it wasn't even your idea this was what how marcusa looked at it and so this is the same kind of thing it's like how do you find where people are happy Right. And then ruin it so that they're miserable, so that they want to be revolutionaries. And the, what they call that is exposing the contradictions. Right. In other words, in Hegelian language, the life you live is the thesis. Mm -hmm. Making you miserable about, miserable about it is the antithesis. And now we'll offer you some new synthesis that we'll call liberation or right. communism or something great where everything's going to be perfect on the other side as long as we just all keep working on it. And it, they kind of have that motto, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Right. Right. Yeah, it's going to be real bumpy on the way, but I promise it's worth it. You know, we got to endure some hardships on the way there. And then, you and know, what do you we'll, mean by better? We'll right. have a thousand year utopia on the other end. The thousand year Reich lies on the other end of this, this thinking. Um, yep. And misery loves company. Oh, misery does love company, <laughs> right? And so this is actually, that's kind of part of the magic. Yeah. Um, I mentioned Eric Vogelin. He called... Uh, Hegel's writing, particularly Phenomenology of Spirit mm. and um, The Science of Logic, mm. um, he called them grimoires, books of spells. Mm. He said that Hegel wrote magic spells with mm. his dialectical process. He, he wrote ways for you to go in and to manipulate the way people think. And in fact, because it's a negative process, negation is the process, Alfhaben, in, well, let's get into that in, term in German. Let's 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 go. Let's let me finish specific. real quick. Cause, oh, okay. Because okay. what happens is, if you just do a negative thing over and over again, are you going to make something better by doing negative over and over again? Right. No, you're exposing the contradictions. What you're doing is you're trying to make people miserable. 
Mm. right? And that's going to help them perfect their ideas. Now, granted, in a strict philosophical, often, you know, ideal land, philosophers can make use of the dialectical process to improve ideas. Iron mm -hmm. sharpening iron, if right, you will. Right, right, right. And dialectic is a useful tool. Hegel put it forth, Fichte made it better uh, in some ways and made it more dangerous in others. But to bring that into your everyday life, is a different thing than philosophers right. trying to find where is this idea maybe slightly self-contradictory. That's mm. a different process. It's a different domain. But we do we do need to get back to to Alfhaben. Alfhaben. Yes. You know where Alfhaben appears as a term, by the way? Tell me. It's in repressive tolerance in German. Oh, okay. right. Okay. It shows up later. In, yes. In Marcuse's repressive tolerance mm -hmm. in German. Yeah. So I say that to show there is a direct through line from. Mm -hmm from Hegel, this, besides the fact that Marcuse names Hegel also in the essay and in, in his books uh, and most of the other things that he's written, but there's a direct through line to the, from this concept of Alfhaben, which is the negation part, which is complicated, um, and I hate to say it that way, but it's, it is a bit tricky because it's a misuse of the word. That's why these are magic spells. Hegel misused language and Hegel's descendants misuse language. Mm. What a shock. But this Alphaben appears, a straight line, the negation mm. process that Marcusa means when he writes Repressive mm. Tolerance is the same mm. negation process that Hegel was talking about. Mm. And I have contended, of course, it, you know, many times now in public, that we live in the logic of Repressive Tolerance mm. today. Repressive Tolerance is the logic we live in. And of course, postmodernism did the same thing, looking for those contradictions at, say, the boundaries of categories, try to dissolve those or within the power dynamics of language, you know, the discourses all have their own contradictions in them with where is the meaning actually located? Nowhere, you know, that's Derrida. So mm. these guys were Hegelian too. There's a straight line from Hegel to woke, and that line is drawn through Alfhaben. Mm. And um, Alfhaben means, <laughs> the Germans that are gonna watch this are gonna slay us for this. <laughs> Alfhaben in German, regular German speech means to, to keep to maintain, to, to keep in good condition or whatever. So mm. it's like, if, if you had some kids and you know, the babysitter's coming, you, you know, they're in good hands, Alfhaben, you know, we're gonna keep them well. But it doesn't mean that for these critical philosophers. It has a more complex meaning with the critical philosophers, including Hegel, and then of course the critical theorists. And it means to keep while taking apart to negate, to abolish. Abolish is one of the more common translations. Um, to take apart, but also you still have this idea of keeping. So I actually, um, a person on, uh, a friend of mine on Twitter actually, without even knowing it, so this is how deep into the water it is, gave the perfect example of, of, of Alfhaben. And this is how deep it is in the water. This person, as far as I know, has never heard of, except on my Twitter feed maybe, has never heard of Hegel. Hmm. And the person said, Twitter is such that. Right, and you've heard me say that, that Twitter is a, is a deconstruction machine. Um, it's like the perfect deconstruction machine. What is Twitter in essence? It's a deconstruction machine, Alfhaben. Um, so what she said was, um, you could put on Twitter, the sky is blue, right? And somebody would say, you know, somebody would, would negate this, but she said something very specific. I want to set it up a little bit different. So she said, you know, you could put on Twitter that the sky is blue, and of course Twitter is going to chew that up. It's going to tear it apart. But the way it's going to do it, she said it so perfectly, because if you were just going to give, that's a thesis, the sky is blue. You can see it. You could negate it by saying, no, it's not. 
that's a strict negation. You could say, no, it's orange. Mm. That's a negation by implication. Right. But she said, you could put on Twitter, the sky is blue, and somebody would reply, not at night. Right. Not at night. And all of a sudden, you get this idea, like, oh, it does. That's what Hegel would have had in mind, mm -hmm. is it's negating a claim while expanding your field of view. And mm -hmm. that's how he claimed. So we don't want to, like, straw man Hegel. Right. That's how he claimed you can get to something bigger. Mm. But you get this distinct impression that he's being clever, right? You're like, yeah. And you just missed one million percent of the point. Mm. And, you know, we wrote about that in Cynical Theories. It's like deconstruction, we said, often looks like people nitpicking at words to deliberately miss the point. Mm. That's Aufheben. It is nitpicking to deliberately miss the point. Mm. And it's inherently, what does it do to your soul to get caught on that, right? You're like, ah, oh, you got me. You know, you're just annoyed. You're, you're like, you got me, yeah, and you're annoyed because it wasn't what you meant. You mm. meant, when you said the sky is blue, what you meant is when daylight is coming through the sky, not at, you know, dusk or dawn, that the sky, because of, you know, Rayleigh scattering and whatever other process, appears blue in the way mm. that we understand color. That's what you actually mean. You mean something more complicated than the sky is blue, a very simple sentence. And it's just annoying. And this is the kind of thing, though, that what, what Alf Haben's about. The idea is to take that sense of certainty that you have. Like, I don't think anybody is unclear about what color the sky is, you know, right? And the, to take that sense of certainty you have in that and to just knock it off its pedestal, mm. often by kind of missing the point. Mm -hmm. The contradiction of the blue sky is nighttime. Mm. But that's not really a contradiction of the blue sky. It's mm. a contradiction of a sentence. Mm. Right? Mm. You haven't talked about the thing we're really talking about. You've talked about the you've moved it from the world into language, right? Mm. Or for Hegel from the world or from the world into ideas. Right. James So we've talked about Alfhaven. We've talked about Well, we've talked about Alfhaven in to understand what it is. Right. But, but we haven't said the, things the like that social justice is an Alfhaven on justice. Okay, let's go there then. Right? We yep. haven't talked about the idea that we're now going to list our pronouns is an Alfhaven on the idea that we have the ability to tell what sex somebody is overwhelmingly most of the time. Mm -hmm. We don't need to list pronouns to be able to visually identify or even auditorily identify what sex somebody is most of the time. Right. Especially if they're adults. Right. Right. Uh, it's obviously everybody has that, you know, you, you call them on the phone and the 12 year old son answers and it sounds like mom. and. Mm. A little awkward, but that's the nature of puberty, right? right. But listing your pronouns is an alphaben on the idea that we know what sex is. Mm -hmm. The idea of shifting from from sex to gender is an alphaben on the idea of biological sex. Mm -hmm. Gender is a social construct. That that deconstructs, that's alphaben to the idea of biological sex being a stable category. Mm. So it seems like this abstract thing, but this is a real deal. So you have justice, right? Mm -hmm. Justice, social justice. What is that? That's your antithesis. You have justice. Right. Justice is that, you know, that which is fair is going to be done. Um, and if it doesn't occur naturally, we'll figure out a way to try to um, settle the score or, you know, right, even right, things right. up. And typically the person who has been wronged in them, they are a person mm. is an individual. And so justice is technically a concept that applies 
to the rights of individuals. And this is how all of the Enlightenment thinkers would have thought about it. Right. Social justice is justice and rights to groups. Mm-hmm. But groups aren't a person. Right. Groups... It's a collective. They're, yeah, they're a, they're a collective, but they don't have their own mind. Correct. They don't have their own set of feelings. There's no such thing as group feelings. There's no individuality. In fact, that's right. Yeah, so this is... Social justice is, in fact, the antithesis portion. Thesis is... Justice. It is justice. Social justice is an antithesis, antithesis that we have to now think not in terms of individual justice. Now we have to think in terms of group justice. Mm-hmm. And then the synthesis is going to be some new world where we're now thinking mm-hmm. primarily mm-hmm. about justice in some new way that's going to be very collective and very collectivist. Right. And that, of course, is also Hegel, who is a huge fan of the state. Right. Well, that's where I was going to actually go. Yeah. Is I was going to try to get back to... So, Hegel... All of this leads to where he would see perfection through the state itself. The state for him, um, so again, with these these trinities, right? These yeah. triples that he had everywhere. And again, with the mirror to Christianity, mm-hmm. which was kind of his backdrop, even though that's what he was, in some sense, trying to get, in a very real sense, trying to get away from. Um, the the state for him was is the parallel of the Son, the Father, mm-hmm. the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so what you actually have for Hegel is this tripartite hmm. program where a Trinitarian program where you have um, the, the uh, I guess, the, what is it? The ideas are going to be the father. That's the pure platonic realm. The ideas are the thing. And then the state is where the ideas manifest. And so they are the son, the, the, the word made flesh, if you will, or the idea made, made concrete. And then the state itself gives rise to the spirit. And obviously that's the Holy Spirit, right, in, in um, parallel. But for Christians, this isn't Christian theology. You know, it's not like, oh, we're replacing Jesus with the state. It's not that simple. Because for, for Christians, what you have, and I don't want to overspeak ever, you know, so correct me if my theology's off, but you have three in one as they are, and that's what it is. Right, they are eternal. They are within one God. There are three persons. Yes, maybe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal. Yeah, co-eternal in particular. Right. Okay, this is very important because there's a givenness to that. Mm-hmm. They are. Mm-hmm. God is the Trinity. The the the, the Godheads within the Trinity are. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's maybe not the right word. With Hegel, it's a circle. Mm-hmm. With Hegel, it's mm-hmm. a circle. Okay. So with Hegel, what you have is that you have the ideas manifesting in the state and the state giving rise to the spirit, and then the spirit informs the new ideas. Mm. And so now, rather than having a God that is in tripartite, uh, or three parts, Mm. that just is, co-eternal, you now have this spiral through time Mm. history. You have... The ideas give rise to the state. The state gives rise to the spirit. The spirit informs new ideas. Right. Which creates a new, more perfect state, which gives rise Mm -hmm. to a new world spirit. And then, as I said, the goal for Hegel is that this spiraling through history has an end. An eschaton. There is an eschatology. When the dialectical process has been pushed to that limit, 
and you have an increasingly perfected state, wham, in that instant, the world spirit realizes itself as the absolute, as God, and the eschaton is immunitized and the utopia arrives because you now have a perfected state that everybody is subordinate to and is given into and it, it's in a sense like the three parts become one mm -hmm. and become whole again. But there's this teleology, there's a telos to history for Hegel. There's a trajectory and a purpose to that trajectory and because it's rooted in ideas and state and then the spirit that that gives rise to, that's human. Hmm. So the faster we cook up the ideas, the more things we alfhaben, the faster the spiral goes, and the faster we get to the utopia at the end of history. It basically explains everything. And is, you will yes. be judged by the eye, as I phrased it. This isn't Hegel's terms, this is me. You will be judged by the eye at the end of history. Mm -hmm. That is that projection that, you know, you, everybody has projections of things. You think, man, you know, we look back to our grandparents' time and they were doing some backward stuff and then, you know, well, it's for their time. You know, we don't, we don't want to commit presentism, mm -hmm. as it's called. We don't want to judge the past by the standards of the present. But if looking back, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. it was a different time, you know. There were some problems. If we go back two more generations, mm -hmm. you know, now we're getting into like the mid-19th century and it's some ugly stuff was happening. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely been progress, right? Well, now, what you see a lot of people do who are Hegelian thinkers on the left, and in particular this young Hegelian mindset, is they project forward a couple generations and they think, mm. man, what are, my, what are my grandchildren gonna look back and think of me? Right. Or my great-great-grandchildren, how would they think of people in our time? Mm. And then if you kick that out to the end of history, all the generations, now all of a sudden you end up with, you can either be on the right or wrong side of history. Mm -hmm. The right side of history is a Hegelian concept. It is a Hegelian article of faith that there is a moral position to take, that there is the correct side to be on in this dialectical corkscrew mm -hmm. through history to the perfected utopia. Mm -hmm. And the moral, the way that human beings think morally is that later generations within that place will think back and they will say, oh, those people were progressive. Good for them, even if it had to be in their time. But you can see, you know, Lincoln's mm. not good enough. Uh, lots of other people are not good enough. But those people were progressive. They were on the right side of history. And those other people were regressive mm -hmm. and into the fire. Mm -hmm. In other words, we'll destroy their memory. We'll destroy, because this is all kind of more material and it's, it's not spiritual. There's no hell. Right. There's there's just obliteration. The there's just being right. left out of the the writing of the story of history. You are on the bad side. You get written out. Mm -hmm. You get forgotten. You it's as much it's like you never existed except as a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I mean that's the religious mindset of today's left, right side of history. That's their meta narrative, and it traces all the way back to Hegel's. Hmm metaphysics of mm. with a teleological trajectory for history um, with the idea that the spirit arises out of how the state is functioning mm. and that the state arises out of how the ideas of the world are being thought of by the philosophers very philosopher king kind of flavor to that mm. very plato um, so there's a root there is a very 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 clear root to the left of the past i mean we're 2021 now so 1820 less 200 years 
Wow. So to kind of wrap this up then, in terms of Hegel's influence directly on what's happening today, and, and I would say within this age of where things started to really reach the boiling point between, let's say, 2014 to now, which I mean, things have progressed so quickly uh, here in 2021, where there's a demand for change and a demand for change now. Everything is a crisis and everything must change now. Yeah. How does Hegel kind of work into that? And where do you see his influence then coming through others that are actively working today? Kind of the two biggest places, I, if I had to say it, was that there's that idea that, oh wow, there's a crisis, so the faster we turn the corkscrew of history, the faster we get to the other side and everything's going to be perfectly rosy and green. So the, the, the corkscrew of history, like, oh, we have to act now, we have to act harder, we have to expose right. the contradictions more. We have to drive this dialectical engine faster. If we, mm -hmm. we, we made the analogy earlier of it being like a car, we gotta put the pedal to the metal and make that engine spin as fast as yes. it can spin. Right. Um, like a little Mazda engine with that rotary engine, you know, you gotta make it go 11,000 RPM. <laughs> so there's that yep. as it's kind of coming to a head. And what that is, is it's, it's like end times cults in Christianity. Mm. It's people who have detected end times. The religious commandment isn't to go warn people and convert, it's to get people to do the dialectical process faster. Mm. And so that's where you see that pressure. And then the second part, of course, is, well, the state has the answer. Let's put more power into the state. Let's put more energy into the state. Let's subvert our own will to the state because that's the proper relationship to the state that Hegel would have advocated and, of course, that Marx advocated on the false promise that on the other side of giving everything to the state, the state will magically dissolve itself because it will realize its own irrelevance when things become finally perfect. Mm, mm. So in the end, we would say that we must study all the things that are happening right now, but it is necessary to understand the context by which these ideas that we have that are thrust upon us today, whether it be critical theory, critical race theory, and one that we are talking about as well is, is, is climate justice. And then, you know, whatever the prefix is, and then justice right Yeah, yeah exactly. That's Alf Haben also. But yeah, the thing is, it is not possible to understand, therefore it is not possible to respond to. If you talk about, you want to keep, keep losing is to not understand, you will keep losing if you don't understand that the, the, the entire philosophical and metaphysical engine, even theological at some level, engine of the left mm. for the past 200 years is Hegel. And not right. all of Hegel, like I said, there's a young and old Hegelian split. The old Hegelians, just to summarize briefly, so it doesn't, we don't leave it hanging, believed that Hegel was arguing that the Prussian state at the beginning of the 19th century had achieved perfection. Mm -hmm. And so we must conserve the now perfected Prussian state. Um, whereas the young Hegelians were like, uh, no, stuff's not perfect yet. And they actually had the argument, I think, on that one. Um, and therefore we have to do this process. And they didn't mm -hmm. have the argument, I think, on that part. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, things were, I don't think that Prussia in 1830 was the pinnacle of humanity by any means. Mm. So this is the, what their split was. The, the conservatives believed that Hegel was saying, and think of how far apart those, those ideas are, how unclear Hegel must have been. Um, but it's that specifically that young Hegelian path, and if you want the name of the philosophers, it's Hegel to Feuerbach to Marx. And then from Marx, it's just a kind of a, that's it. Everybody just yep. latched onto Marx. The left was driven by Marx. Even the liberals, though, on the left, meaning classical liberals who lean left, have increasingly bowed to Hegelian thought 
-hmm. over time. So if you don't understand Hegel, you're not going to be able to understand the left. You're not going to be able to respond to the left. And so you're going to just keep getting dragged into their little tricks and games or dialectical traps, and you're going to lose every single time. And so wherever their trajectory and that spiral they believe they're taking us on through history, wherever they're taking us, we're going to get dragged along in the in the rip of riptide of that because we don't have any responses to it. Mm. We, classical liberalism has responses to it. You know, we're going to think in the individual, but nobody will dare do it because they've so effectively dropped that Alf Haben mm-hmm. on all of those core concepts. You, rights from the creator. Well, there is no creator now. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. grind that up. And inalienable rights. Well, where did the rights come from? Well, they, they, the rights must be privileges granted by the state in some sense. In fact, let's only talk about privilege all the time. Oh, you know, you've worked hard and built something in your life. Must be connected to some awful thing. Antithesis. Privilege. Mm-hmm. You didn't work hard. You didn't build that as it was a couple of years back. It's privilege that got mm-hmm. you there. Thesis. Antithesis. It's to tear down these ideas, right? Mm. And if you don't understand that that's the function of these concepts, and they don't have to have read Hegel to, to be doing it. Like that, my friend on Twitter, she just knew, she just spent enough time in the water on Twitter to know this is how they think here. And you pick it up and it's rewarded, et cetera, mm. in the universities. And so if you don't understand it, you're never going to be able to devise a response to it. We keep telling people, what do you got to do? You got to say no. Nobody knows how to say no because the second they say no, what about maybe? And mm-hmm. there's your, there's your Alf Haben hits no right. and it gets torn up. Or maybe mm-hmm. you're only saying no because you have you know, racist intentions or you're a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. There it is again. It's, it's Alf Haben, Alf Haben, Alf Haben. Alf Haben on gender, Alf Haben on, you know, what's the idea? I said it with the other day with the trans thing where they're trying to, like they had this book that came out and it's like what is what are lesbians today and half of them have penises and one of them's a dog i'm not making that up lesbians today it's like a book about what does a lesbian really look like and it's all these you know cartoon naked bodies and half of them are men and one of them's a dog mm-hmm. alf haben tearing down the idea of lesbian now because we have to continue to queer things queering is alf haben mm. it's everywhere once you start figuring it out and then you have to realize it's purposed it has a talos it has a goal that it's trying to get to but the problem is is that the goal is on the other side of the rainbow Mm. so to not be manipulated to understand what someone's trying to do to you and how they're doing it it's necessary to understand the philosophies and the ideas that govern today correct and if you want a practical thing, it's very simple. You learn to spot the Alfhaven. If you call it Alfhaven, nobody knows what you're talking about. So you don't say, you see it, you say, this is a manipulation. And I mean it, that's what you say back to them. You say, this is a manipulation and it doesn't work on me. Mm. And it's amazing. You should see what happens when you do this. Mm. I see your manipulation, I know what you're doing, and it doesn't work on me. Mm. You can do it all you want to somebody else, it doesn't work on me. And they flip out. They don't know what to do. They have two choices, which is to go away or, or flip out. They usually flip out. Mm. But that's putting them in a dialectical trap um, while maintaining something that's outside of their, their particular dialectic. They don't have the tools to deal with it. So this is why you have to understand it. If we want it, that's one tool. If you want to make a toolbox to fight back, you have to understand 
I mean, I know we're getting tortured with the analogy, but they have a car. You have to make the tools to the car. Right. You have to understand it. And uh, so people have got to understand not all of Hegel's many, many is huge body of works, but is particularly, you know, I mentioned phenomenology, spirit, and uh, system of logic, system of science was the, was the full correct title to that. System of science, the phenomenology of spirit is volume one of the system of science. And then secondly, um, the science of logic. Mm -hmm. And if you understand those, then you're, you're equipped to start making the tools to fight back uh, against what's going on from the modern left. And you'll understand the roots by which all the other ideas are sourced. That's true. If we can pull up the Hegelian root and say this thing is, this is the problem. It's, if you want to go the faith route and say it's a faith, so we should, reg we should deal with it like a faith, which is to say secularism applies, <laughs> going to deal with that one now. Um, or if mm -hmm. it's to say philosophically instead of in that direction, you know, let's get this thing up. Let's pull the roots of this thing up. We're going to look back at people who have criticized them. Popper, Schopenhauer, uh, Bertrand Russell, very strong critics of Hegel throughout history. These arguments have been made and made well, and they have to be brought back to the surface and applied in our time again, and understanding how they apply in the new context.